0: God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have now to open up your word. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in our time together? Would you help us to see not just David and Solomon, but to the one that they point to? So Holy Spirit, would you speak to every single heart today through me or in spite of me, but speak. We ask in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Now, if you're new to Rock Hill, you are coming into the middle of a sermon series called The Thread. We took a little break last week because it's Easter. We gotta preach about the resurrection on Easter. But that means you get First Chronicles today. Woo! Yes! And the first thing you might notice about First Chronicles is it starts with nine chapters of genealogies. Yeah! Woo! It actually begins, the first word of 1 Chronicles is Adam, and then the last word, or the last words of 2 Chronicles is actually the words of King Cyrus of Persia, telling the people that they can go home from exile. It's actually the last book in the Hebrew Bible, and if, you've, if you're thinking, I think I've read this before, you're right. So here's an intro video.
1: The first book of Chronicles was likely written by Ezra between 450 and 425 BC, well after the people's return from exile in Babylon. First and Second Chronicles originally functioned together as the culmination of the entire Jewish Bible. The author retells portions of Israel's history, looking back at God's faithfulness in order to look forward to God's promise that still remains, the coming of the Messianic King. First Chronicles opens with a series of genealogies naming key characters from Israel's story, but mainly focusing on the messianic lineage of Judah down through King David. The author recalls the faithful King David during his reign over Israel as he organizes the priesthood and prepares for the construction of the temple. Each story highlights David's love and obedience to God, painting him as an ideal king figure, an image foreshadowing the future Messiah to come. First Chronicles reminds the Israelite people about their nation's past through stories about God's faithfulness and judgment in order to sustain their hope for the future.
0: All right, so Chronicles was actually originally one book, but we divided it into two parts. Does anybody know why? Scroll length. Yeah, something really super spiritually important like that. So it was a United book, but we're just going to look at 1 Chronicles, which essentially covers the reign of King David. Now what's interesting to note as you begin to read through 1 Chronicles is that it covers much of what First and 2 Samuel covers, with one kind of main difference, or two couple main differences. One is that it focuses in on the temple and the worship of God's people and David's unique role in that. The other is that the unique, sordid stories of David's failures, of David fleeing persecution, the stuff that is, ooh, that stuff's in the Bible? It's not actually in the Chronicles account. Which makes you ask the question why? Is this author trying to hide the the hard stuff in the biblical story? And the answer is no. Actually, it's retelling the story of God from the other side of the exile, looking at David as kind of the prototype or the gold standard for what kings were supposed to be. The gold standard so that they would be filled with a sense of hope for the coming messianic king that they were still waiting for, even though they had come back from exile. So how do you capture all of that in a single chapter or a single story? You don't. (laughs) But we're going to look at the last couple chapters. Uh, It's basically David passing the baton on to his son Solomon. It's his charge to his son in front of all of the people as he hands the baton and they coronate Solomon as the king. So in chapter 22, the begin, beginning of this transition occurs, and, and David gives an individual charge to Solomon, his son, to build the temple. And then the remaining chapters are essentially David organizing all of the workers and the laborers and the priests and all of the people who are going to, be at, who are going to work in this particular temple. And here in chapter 28, he gives Solomon a personal charge. He gathers all of the leaders so that what he said in chapter 22, he now says, but in front of everybody else, and he says, Solomon, be strong and courageous and build the temple of God. And then he gives them detailed plans for how to do it, like really detailed plans. And then he gives generously so that the temple can be built, and then he invites the other leaders of the people to, to give generously as well, and after they've given, they, he prays and they celebrate and they throw a party, and so that's kind of where we're going Today We're just going to kind of walk through this particular story, starting First Chronicles chapter 28. The first eight verses kind of set the context of what's going on. Let's read. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that serve the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors." So all of the who's who of Israel are gathered now as David gives this charge to Solomon. Then King David rose to his feet and said, "'Hear me, my brothers and my people. "'I had it in my heart to build the house of rest "'for the ark of the covenant of the Lord "'and for the footstool of our God. "'And I made preparations for building. "'But God said to me, "'You may not build a house for my name, "'for you are a man of war and have shed blood. "'Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me "'from all my father's house "'to be king over Israel forever.' For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me and made me king over all Israel. And all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Notice that David's sense of awe and wonder just doesn't dissipate at all. He's still blown away that God would choose him, and now his son. Verse 6. He said to me, It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever." So David assembles everyone, and this is his passing the baton ceremony. He retells the story about how God took him and made him king. He tells the story about how he desired to build the temple, but God said, no, it will be your son who will build the temple. And then he reaffirms Solomon as his heir in front of all of the people who mattered then, all of the who's who, Um, in light of all of his other sons who also might make a play or a claim to the throne. And then he restates the conditions of blessing that God has placed on them. I will establish your kingdom, verse 7, forever, if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So that's the condition. Solomon, you want to go well? Obey the Lord. Follow his commandments and rules. And then in verses 9 and 10, David specifically singles out Solomon and gives him A charge, these kind of final words from his father. He says, In you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong. And do it. Solomon, my son, he says. This is who you are. You are my son, the son of the king and the future king. As I have known God, so know the God of your father. So know God like I have known God. Serve him, he says, with your whole heart and with a willing mind. With your sharp mind, Solomon, and with your heart, serve the Lord. It it echoes the, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, or with all your mind and with all of your strength. And goes on to give instructions for parents to pass that on to their children. I think David is doing just that with his child. Solomon, love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind. Seek him. But then he gives him a warning. God knows everything. You can't fool him at the level of the heart and at the level of the mind. Don't try to fake your allegiance or your devotion to him. Be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And then he gives a profound invitation, an invitation that I think resonates just as deeply today as it did when it was originally given. He says, Solomon, if you seek him, he will be found by you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off. Some of you today probably need to hear that gracious invitation, originally given to Solomon, but I think applies to us as well. You're here today because you're seeking God. You may not be quite sure of him. You may not be a a Christian yet, but there's something that's intriguing about the the person who invited you. Or maybe there's a crisis in your life, and you're wondering, how do I make sense or meaning of this? You're seeking God. You're wondering if he is true, if he is who he's revealed himself to be. And so the invitation that David gives to Solomon, I would just echo to you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. See, this reveals the heart of the father to be found. He doesn't like to hide. He doesn't want to play a cat and mouse gotcha game with you. He wants you to seek him, and he is gracious to be found. But there's also a warning. If you turn away from him, if you harden your heart, if you go your own way, He might just let you go your own way. Solomon is warned, if you forsake him, he will cast you off. And then David gets to the issue that is really on his heart, that he's been building to for about eight chapters now. He says in verse 10, Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And then the next nine verses are incredibly detailed plans for how to do that. And for your sake this morning, because we've got two chapters to cover, we're going to skip that. Just know it's detailed. This much gold for this thing, this much silver for this thing, on and on it goes. And after he gets through with all of these detailed instructions that he gives to Solomon, he says this in verse 20, almost re echoing the charge. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And with you all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people who will be holy at your command. Solomon, my son, be strong and courageous And do the work. Do what God has laid out for you to do. God be with you. And I'll help too. Look at all these people that have gathered to help you in the work. The words of David here are almost identical to the words that God gives to Joshua as he's about to lead the people into the promised land in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous and do it. It's kind of the reassurance that we need when we're about to take on a monumental task, right? Right? Something significant, something beyond their own ability to do. David says to Solomon, be strong and courageous. You know what I've been dreaming about and organizing the people for. Now you do it. You carry it out. Now we see a lot of the ugly in David's heart in First and 2 Samuel, don't we? But in this interaction, we see some of the things that make David truly great. He could have let God's no to him turn into resentment and bitterness in his heart, couldn't he? God, I really wanna do this for you. No, David, you don't get to do it, your son does. Do you see how quickly that would turn? That could turn, if feeding the wrong thing? I get this picture in my mind of like some spoiled child on the playground who doesn't get their way and so they take their ball and they go home. Well, if I don't get to, then nobody gets to, right? And it would be very easy for David to be like, this was my idea. I wanted to do this for you, God. Why did you pick somebody else? But he doesn't. He does everything in his power to set up Solomon, his son, for success, doesn't he? And then he leads the people in worship and in prayer and in an opportunity to give. Has that ever happened to you? Has God ever said no to you when you wanted to do something? You set your heart on something. Maybe even, it was even a dream or something that you could do for him. And God said no, or maybe even worse, God said not you. Sometimes the, the dark recesses of our heart are laid bare when God says no or not you. But David shows the beauty that's in his heart as well as darkness, but the beauty in his heart when God says, no, not you, he, he does everything in his power to set up Solomon to succeed. Because at the end of the day for David, it wasn't about him. It was about God. And it was about making much of God and displaying God's glory and building a building where God could dwell, that the people could gather and worship him. They could draw near to his presence. He doesn't let God's no to him become a point of bitterness or resentment but does everything he could to make his son succeed, which includes, as we'll see, putting his money where his mouth is. Chapter 29 begins, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, anemone, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. He's been gathering that for the last few chapters. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my house of my God. 3000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. And so David not only sets up his son for success in gathering all of these things, he opens up his own wallet, his own person says, and I want to give to this as well, personally, from my own pocket. Isn't that beautiful? And he gives a lot. And he does so joyfully. But not to hoard all of the opportunity to give, we'll see that now he invites the rest of the leaders and the people of Israel to give to this work as well. Verse 5b, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands of hundreds, and of the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents, and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron." And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. This is incredible generosity from the people of God. Notice that in the story, no one here is put out. They are rejoicing and giving willingly. David had already done a ton up till this point, but he still wanted to do more. He wanted to sacrifice from his own purse. But he doesn't want to do it all and rob the people of the opportunity to give as well. And so he invites them. And here you have a story where people blow blow away generosity. So much is collected so that the work can be done. See, the thing about God's people is that God's people are to be generous people because God is a generous God. The name Christian should be synonymous with generosity. But look at any statistics that people compile, it's not often or always the case, is it? See, we're to give in response to God's generosity for us. He who left the riches and the glory and the splendor of heaven and became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the motivating factor for our lives. We are to look to Jesus, see all that he has given to us, and we are to give generously in light of that. That's what it means to serve a generous God. One of the things that often makes me sad about being a vocational pastor is anytime I talk about money, people think, Uh, You're playing an angle here, Pastor Kyle. There's an ulterior motive in your mind. You just want my money. And some of you, even now, you're seeking the Lord and you're like, okay, all of the stereotypes are true. Pastor's preaching about money. He's talking about generosity and giving. Here's the thing. God has taken great care of this church. Many of you have been so generous. But not all of you. And to be a Christian, to be a follower of God, to be God's people, means that we are a generous people. More on that later. All this giving and generosity leads to a prayer of worship and dedication on David's part. Verse 10, therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of, our, of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to thus offer willingly for all things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. For we are like for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O oh Lord our God. All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and it is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and Have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statues, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made him provi- or made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads, and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. What a beautiful prayer of worship and humility and joy. A couple things just to note. One, it focuses on God's character This power. Blessed are you, O Lord. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Even though David is king and he is now passing on the baton to his son, he says, God, you are king. You're in control here. Let's make no bones about it. David is filled with a sense of awe and wonder, and it leads to humility as he acknowledges God's kingship. Second, he acknowledges that all that they had given, they simply gave back to God what was his anyway. Did you catch that? There's four times he says, all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours, including what we just gave. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Did you catch that? When it comes to generosity, we're simply giving God what's his anyway. Everything we own, we don't own. Do you know that? Everything we own, we don't own. We are not the owners, we are the stewards of what is God's. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to honor God with everything, including our money and our stuff. We are, at our best day, a manager or a steward of what God has entrusted to us. Therefore, to give it back to him is no big thing. It's his anyway, right? We're to use it generously because God is generous. I don't know how many other ways we can say this. Many of you know this, but do you know it? You know that this is true, that God owns it all, but do you actually live like you're stewarding another person's resources, or do you act like an owner? I don't say that to guilt you. I say that because I want you to experience the generous life. Who are the most joyful people that you know? My guess, my strong inclination is if you dug down, they're probably generous people. They probably use their money in such a way to show the world that money is not their God, but that God is their God. And that money is just a thing that can be used for incredible or ordinary purposes. I love the generosity. Like no one is twisting their arm. No one is saying, you have to do this. Rather, they respond to God's love and God's initiation, God's invitation And they give more than enough. More than enough. Third, isn't it beautiful how David prays for his son? Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies and your statues, performing all, that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. At the end of his life, David doesn't focus on his own needs, but he lifts up his son and he says, God, help him. Give him a heart for you. Help him to complete this work. What a beautiful, unselfish prayer. And after he prays, what happens? They offer sacrifices and they throw a party. They celebrate what God has done. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king, the second time and they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as priest then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in the place of David his father and he prospered and all Israel obeyed him all the leaders and the mighty men and all also the sons of king David pledged their allegiance to king Solomon and the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel they offered sacrifices to the Lord And they throw a party. They celebrate all that God has done. They reaffirm their commitment to Solomon as king. Now, it's interesting to note that it says this is now the second time they did that. If you were to go to 1 Kings, you would also read a story about Solomon's anointing as king. And it's a lot less smooth than it is here. One of David's other sons, a guy by the name of Adonijah, sets himself up as king in David's place. Therefore, Nathan and Bathsheba and Zadok the priest and Solomon have to rush to make Solomon king without preparations or formality because that is what God had planned to happen. Notice that it's very smooth here, but it's alluded to in verse 22, and they made Solomon the son of David king a second time. Now, why is that? Why is it that the author of Chronicles focuses in on this particular smooth transition and Doesn't talk at all about the little kerfuffle from 1 Kings chapter 1. Because the author of Chronicles is trying to highlight the high point of Israel here. David, Solomon, a picture of what they have to look forward to when Messiah comes. Now, they're under no delusions of grandeur. As you keep reading the story into 2 Chronicles, it will pretty quickly once again go off the rails. But here for a short time, a beautiful king transitioning and setting up his son to do well. And that's the story, which makes us ask the question, so what? <laughs> it's about time we get to some application, right, Pastor Kyle? Some of you are thinking, that's a nice story from 1 Chronicles, but what in the world does that have to do with my life today? I'm glad you asked. Here's five things. First, don't let your disappointment with God saying no. Turn to bitterness in your heart. Rather, set someone else up for success. True godliness doesn't care about who gets the credit. It cares that God gets the glory. And David, with all of his flaws, is a beautiful example of this. He could have let God's no turn to resentment and bitterness in his heart, but he doesn't. He sets up his son for success and then continues giving generously to the Lord. What about you? Has God told you no recently? Or has God said not you recently? How can you maybe change your perspective from being at the center of God's plan and will to putting other people in a position to succeed? One of the reasons why we're absolutely committed to church planting is because there's such a beautiful kingdom instinct to it. It isn't about one person or one church. It's about God's work being done. See, one of the churches that we start might actually get bigger and more influential than us. Heaven forbid, they might even have a better preacher. (gasps) I know, it is possible. It is. It is. (laughs) Kyle, get back to your notes, okay? This is going off the rails here. What if you saw your life as the opportunity to invest in other people and set them up to succeed. There's a beautiful kingdom instinct at play there, isn't there? That it isn't about you and your recognition. It's about God and his glory. And David, in his joy, in his joy, he does everything possible that his son might succeed. He doesn't get bitter or angry. What a beautiful picture for us. Second, When it comes to the Lord, he loves to be found. If you're here today seeking and you're not a Christian, might I just suggest to you a simple prayer. God, would you reveal yourself to me? God, would you help me to know whether or not these words in the Bible are true? God, will you help me to to find you if you're there? God loves to answer that prayer and he loves to be found. Third. Generosity is the best. It's the best. Jesus said it this way, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And when we give, we are simply giving back what is already the Lord's. Think about it. All of your stuff, your wealth, your abilities, how freeing is it to acknowledge it ain't mine. It's God's. Therefore, I get to use it in a way to make much of him. It sets you free, doesn't it? You don't have to hoard it or hang on to it. God owns the, thou- the cattle on a thousand hills. He cares about the lilies of the field and the sparrows in the sky. How will he not also care about you whom he gave his son for? Some of you guys are in bondage to money. You never think you're going to have enough. And so you never give. You wait. Maybe college students. You're thinking, oh, Pastor Kyle, I'm living living at a net loss. I'll give someday, but I can't right now. Here's a good principle. Give on what you live on. You'll have a job. Start in a small way. It's not that God needs your money, but he does need your heart, and your heart has a way of following your money. So start small and give on what you live on. And then when you start getting a lot more, You've already developed some discipline in your life, and you've experienced the joy of generosity. One of the most moving conversations I ever had about giving was with my grandpa, when he talked about tithing and what a struggle it was for him to trust the Lord with that. He was a farmer, and he wasn't well off. But he said, Kyle, it changed my life. My grandpa's one of the most generous people that I know. And, and for him, it was... It, It was an act of sacrifice. It was an act of faith. And then it became something that just kind of got in the way where he's like, I don't need it anymore. Because he experienced the joy of giving. I hope you do as well. I say that as a friend, not just your pastor. Fourth, when God does something incredible, don't forget to celebrate. Like provide all that there is to need for the temple. Don't move so quickly that you forget to celebrate and praise God for what he's doing fifth. How does this particular passage point to Jesus? Here we have a transition, a successful transition from David to Solomon, the two most successful kings in Israel's history, the prototype king, the one that gives us a picture of what Messiah might be like, and yet the people are looking back at this 500 years later from the other side of the exile. As good as David and Solomon were, they only give a glimpse of what the true king will be like. In fact, the charge that David gives to Solomon in verse 9, he utterly fails at. Solomon, my son, know the Lord your God and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Did Solomon do that? No. So the kingdom was divided under his son's reign. You see, as we look at David to Solomon and we see both their strength but also their weaknesses and their failures, it leads us to the reality that we need a king who won't just do what he wants to do but will do all that the father has given him to do even when it costs him greatly. We need a king who will not simply build a temple for God's presence to dwell but will actually be God's presence with us we need a king who will give way more generously than David ever could have dreamed, giving his very life in order to redeem and ransom his people from their sin. As is inspiring of kings as David and Solomon were, they pale in comparison to the one that we really need, the one they pointed to, King Jesus. So now, as Christians, when we read First and Second Chronicles, we don't look at David and Solomon with fawning eyes because we have an even greater revelation given to us we look to king jesus and the rule and the reign that he brought and we see that it is in his generosity that drives us to be generous we see in his new kingdom paradigm that he defines greatness not as those who do the most remarkable things but rather those who make themselves servants it is through his life and death and resurrection that caused us to celebrate the greatest of things, that he is alive. And because of that, we have hope. See, it's not Easter Sunday anymore, but it is Sunday, which we meet on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose. And that's worthy of celebrating. No matter what things are going like in our life or in our church, we celebrate. It is he who who we are to now seek and find. And he loves to be found by us. In fact, not only that has he found by us, but he's actually sent out his people to declare and display and to delight in the gospel for the world to see so that others might see him and find him too. Brothers and sisters, as we look back on King Jesus and see him as the far greater fulfillment of David and Solomon, the one that they pointed to, Let us with joy embrace this new kingdom reality and commission. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to not only study your word, but to praise your name. Because Jesus, you are worthy. And so would you dwell now, Father, in the praises of your people. Would you open our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of Jesus that we might be generous, that we might celebrate, that we might not care about what we do Or others do, but we care about what you do. God, would you do that in our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.